And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. I uh, did, did an interview yesterday and they were asking me about this question saying, well, you know, what does this mean? You know, right? Uh, why are housing prices falling? Well, you know, this is what we've talked about before is that, you know, when you start getting higher interest rates, payments go up, people can't afford houses. And we talked a little bit about this yesterday on the show is that, you know, having to have a down payment of 20% is actually a good thing because it means you can actually afford the house. But we're seeing that go up. And of course, as rates go up, well, that means that mortgage demand is getting a lot weaker. In fact, mortgage demand at 22 year lows. So it just goes to show you how sharp of a pullback. Now it's, it's what's very interesting. The reason I bring this up, it's very interesting is that despite all the negativity, right? So, you know, if we take a look at mortgage demand, 22 year lows, boy, that boy, housing prices are crashing, right? Not really. Um, you know, the economy must be in a deep recession. Maybe, right? But we're not there yet. Um, you know, and you take a look at what's going on with the financial markets, and, and this is one of the big questions for investors. You know, you know, where's the bottom, right? Well, there's some indicators right now that suggest we might actually be closer to a bottom and not, and that's kind of hard to, to wrap your mind around, you know, if you think about it, because, you know, we have got war in, in, in Russia, Ukraine. We've got, you know, this, you know, this kind of recessionary backdrop in Europe. We've got you know, all these issues going on here in the United States in terms of, you know, the highest level of inflation in 40 years. And stocks are pretty much hanging in there. Stocks had a great day yesterday, very strong rally, up about 3% on the NASDAQ, about 2.58% on the S&P, big strong day. And, you know, you're kind of trying to work all this in saying, well, how are stocks rallying so strongly when, you know, the economy looks to be so weak, right? It's just, it's very hard to wrap your head around. But this is the way markets work. And, and so this is why we always try to defer back to technicals and look at, you know, what's the market telling us that it's doing? What's the market saying it wants to do versus what we think it should be doing because of all this media headline driven, you know, stuff that we get. And so if we go back and we look at the technical picture and again, you know, and, and one thing to always do is, is to step away from the daily, right? So, you know, the daily charts, and that's what we always, you know, you see up on CNBC is always the daily charts of whatever's happening in the markets. And that's great, but you get all this volatility and it's a very short-term snapshot. So if we want to really kind of know what the markets are doing, we need to step back a bit. Now, what does technical analysis tell us, right? Technical analysis is just the analysis of price in the markets. And, and, and if you think about the market, it's this big organism of people. And it's, it's a bunch of people that are trying to buy stuff, a bunch of people are trying to sell stuff. It's a market, right? You think about going to the farmer's market. You got a whole bunch of people around trying to sell fruits and vegetables. You got a whole bunch of people around trying to buy the stuff and they're all negotiating on price, right? That's all that, you know, the, the stock market is. It's a big farmer's market. And we're all trying to get the best deal on something. And, you know, so when you take a look at price, what price tells you, and then this is where we start to measure things, you know, statistics about price movement. It tells us what the psychology of the market is, right? What is the psychology of this living organism that is the financial markets? And, and what we're seeing right now on a weekly basis 
is that markets are well deviated below, below their longer term moving averages. Now, we've talked about deviations before, and, and again, it's, it's simply the function of trying to stretch a rubber band as far as you can in one direction. It just eventually can't stretch any further, and it's, the markets are going to rebound. And over the last two weeks, this market has tried to find a bottom here and has started this recovery and, and, and started this rebound. We saw that a little bit yesterday. But importantly here, when we look at this weekly indicator and, and look at things like moving average, convergences and divergences, again, it's a bunch of technical mumbo jumbo, but here's, here's the bottom line of this, is that when indicators get to very oversold levels, typically you're nearer a bottom than not. Indicators don't remain oversold for a very long time. And the reason, as I said, is, is when you're starting to stretch this rubber band in one direction, you can only stretch it so far before it has to snap back. Now, does that mean that the bottom, the ultimate bottom of the market is in? No, that's not what that means, but it does mean that you're probably pretty close to a, a good tradable opportunity in the markets, at least on, a, on an intermediate term basis. Could last a couple of months, a little bit longer. And if we go back and take a look, the MACD indicator right now is at levels that really are very, very low. And we haven't seen an indicator this low before. Going back to 2020, it's even lower than it was in that big sell-off that we had in March of 2020. Indicators like Williams Percent R, Stochastics, RSI, all of those are in very, very deep kind of oversold levels. And so again, when you kind of have all these very oversold conditions at one time, those have typically lined up with previous market bottoms. And again, it doesn't mean that you're about to go ripping off into a new bull market, but it does suggest that a lot of the risk in the market has been wrung out, at least temporarily. Now, again, I have to come back and, and suggest that we need to at least be you know, aware that this is not a normal environment that we're in because normally we don't have the highest level of inflation in 40 years and the Fed you know, aggressively tightening interest rates, not getting looser in terms of interest rate and monetary policy like they were back in 2020. But if we step back even further, and again, this is the kind of the important point, we can strip out some of the Fed interventions and look back further. And if we go back, you know, kind of over time, we, we see that this oversold condition that we have right now is at a deeper level than at any other point in the, in the history of the markets going all the way back here to 1994. We've never been this oversold on so many multiple levels at the same time on a weekly basis. And that's kind of interesting from the standpoint that really the markets have barely touched the 20% decline ratio of what we would call typically technically a bear market, but we're nowhere near a bear market. If you take a look at the long-term bullish trend of the markets, we're nowhere near even reverting back to that long-term trend. So there's, there's a couple of dichotomies here that are very important to pay attention to. Yes, we are very, very oversold here, which suggests that there's a real probability that we're going to get a fairly strong reflexive rally at some point. Now, did that start yesterday? Don't know for sure. We'll need to see some follow through. Markets are going to try to open up this morning. We'll see how they do. We need to see this kind of follow through for the markets. The markets did get above the 50 day moving average yesterday. That was a great first hurdle. Markets need to stay above that, right? We need to hold above that 50-day moving average if we're going to get a continued rally here. But the real question is, is that inflation rate? 
Is this time different? You know, in, in the last, this is going back to 1994, we've never had a market this oversold. And if we had a market this oversold at any other time, going back to 1994, this would be an all out buy signal. But the difference is that, that we have the highest inflation rate since the 1970s. And our chart doesn't even go back that far right now. So, you know, there are some things to certainly remain considerate of, but we're gonna talk some more about positioning and markets and you know the potential here is this could this be the bottom right and and is the bad news already priced in we'll talk about that coming up next here on the real investment show with danny ratliff joining me as well don't go away get by the website realinvestmentadvice.com michael leibowitz's new blog is out on the website right now and of course send us your questions and comments realinvestmentadvice.com Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Inflation touches every aspect of your life. No one can avoid it because we're living in an inflation nation. RIA Advisors has a nine-step inflation battle plan, and we're sharing it with you in a special summer lunch and learn, Thursday, August 4th at noon. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. There's no magic elixir against inflation. Our nine-step plan can help you blunt inflation's effects. Register today at realinvestmentadvice.com. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. Danny Ratliff joining me as well. Good morning, Danny. How are you? Good morning. Doing great. Um, so a couple of things I was just talking about here um, a second ago is that, you know, are we at a market bottom? That's the $64 million question for everybody. And, and it's interesting because we've talked about this before is that, you know, I've never been through a market environment where you have so much pessimism, you know, about the markets. Like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm losing money. I can't stand it. And the world's coming to an end and, and the dollar's going to zero. And, you know, the, and we need to all be, you know, get our bunkers built, you know, this type of attitude. And yet the markets are down less than 20% for the year. Now, look, that sounds like a lot, I know, right? But you've got to put this into context. We were up 130% from the March 2020 lows. So, yeah, you gave back a little bit, but you're not even back to where we were in, you know, February of 2020, right? We haven't even retraced back to that level yet. So we haven't really done that much of a correction and certainly have come nowhere near violating the bullish trends of the market to, to call this a real bear market. But it's interesting because this is, you know, all occurring, this very negative sentiment, yet nobody wants to sell anything, right? I mean, you know, it's this fear of, of missing out. And we talked about this before, you know, like during the run-up in 2020, 2021, there was this fear of missing out, right? Everybody was just buying everything they could buy to get into the markets because it was so easy. You just throw money in the market, you make money, it's great. Now there's this fear of missing out on the bottom. We talked a little bit about this yesterday. I'm about to come up with a new term called FOBO. <laughs> so, um, you know, don't want to miss out on the bottom. And, then, and this is, you know, interesting because now we have people call, calling me up and emailing me going, Lance, just tell me when the bottom's here and, and I've got all this cash I want to start buying stocks with. 
And you don't see that in a bear market. If this was a real bear market, nobody wants to buy stocks at the bottom of the market. But like I was saying a second ago, if you take a look at the technicals of this market, you know, it is, it is fascinating from a technical perspective that we have pushed technical indicators to levels lower than we were in both 2000 and 2008. Sentiment indicators are at 2008 lows. We talked a little bit yesterday. I showed you some charts yesterday on the show. Uh, professional investor sentiment. I talked about this yesterday on Charles Payne. Professional investor sentiment is now as negative as it was in 2008. I mean, everybody's about as bearish on this market as you can get. But asset allocations actually haven't come down all that, all that much in a, in a lot of areas, right? And this is that fear, right? And everybody's, everybody's concerned that the Fed's going to show up just any moment now and go, hey, we got to put money back to work in the markets, right? We got to get QE going again. We got to stop the sell off. I'm not sure that's going to happen. Now, I'm not saying that that means there's more downside to go in the markets because the markets are kind of already starting to tell us that maybe the bottom is in. We're very close, as I was showing you a few minutes ago, on our long-term indicators. We, we run a chart every week on our uh, website. If you go to realinvestmentadvice.com and go to our retirement section where we run our 401k plan manager, we have a risk manager for 401k plans. That indicator is now very, very low and will start to turn up this week. So when I when I run that chart this Saturday and put it in the, in, into the website, you're going to see that indicator turning up. It's going to be very close to a buy signal. Now, normally when that long-term indicator triggers a buy signal, it's a pretty good opportunity to start putting money to work. That's very hard to kind of wrap your head around considering you know all the headlines we're seeing in the, in the markets right now. Right now, it's like we're getting a lot of headlines. Recession risk, you know, has, has rising. A recession in the next 12 months is very likely. Professional investment managers are convinced that there's a recession coming. Why would I want to buy stocks here if a recession's coming? And see, that's the hard part about all this, right? That's, and you've got inflation at the highest level in 40 years. There is a statement to be made here that this time is different. And I don't mean it's, it's different from the standpoint of ignore all the things that are going on. What I'm saying is, is that there's a risk here that this time is different, that the indicators could be wrong. Because we haven't, these indicators haven't had to deal with inflation at 40-year highs in the last 40 years, right? I mean, we, and we haven't been in an environment where the Fed is tightening monetary policy at a time where inflation's running at 40-year highs. So there is, there is an argument to be made this time is different. And so navigating the market here is going to be a more wait and see position. You're not gonna buy the bottom. We're not gonna try to buy the bottom. You know, we may nibble here or there. There are some stocks that are starting to show some positive momentum. And what I'd rather do is, you know, kind of wait for earnings to be announced. So, you know, IBM was a good example yesterday and Lockheed Martin. IBM reported terrible, reported good earnings, but really had a big FX miss, uh, uh, their foreign exchange currency miss. Stock was down yesterday. Market was screaming. Lockheed Martin had poor earnings, but reversed and went positive later in the day. So, again, there's a stock, as we were talking about before, we own, we own United, uh, uh, Raytheon United Technologies um, instead of Lockheed Martin. But, you know, the, 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 the statement here is, is that we were looking for, we're looking for companies that report bad earnings and the stock goes up. That suggests that a lot of that bad earnings is already priced in.
And so we're starting to see some of that. Now, you know, yesterday, Netflix's earnings, they weren't great, but the stock's going to be up this morning because it wasn't as bad as everybody was expecting. And that's really kind of the key here is that expectations have gotten so negative that the not as bad as expected now becomes a, a positive catalyst for the markets. And Danny, we're, you know, I used a terrible analogy yesterday of a leg am amputation. But, you know, <laughs> the, you know the, the not as bad as expected, you know, that's going to be, a, I think we're starting to hear a lot of that. Yeah, not your whole leg, just part of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, they initially they told me it was the whole leg, and I found it was just the last half. It's yeah. still terrible. <laughs> yeah. It's a terrible example. Yeah, you probably could have done a little bit, little bit better <laughs> well, on that you know, one. Well, hey, you know what? It's early in the morning. I'm about, <laughs> I haven't got one cup of coffee in me yet. You're one, I'm working off the fly here. so You were stumped. I don't need your puns this morning. <laughs> wow. Brent's on fire. <laughs> he will be when I light him. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but I think you make some really good points. I mean, we talk about markets being leading indicators, and sometimes we continue to think that, okay, just because we may find out we're in a recession or – you know, we, we know we're there. A lot of that's been baked in. And, you know, we've always talked about how bad news can be good news and, and vice versa. And it's kind of interesting, especially in this environment, depending on how the Fed views it, I think is going to probably be the most important thing moving forward because we've talked about it. We don't want to fight the Fed. CEO sentiment is so negative, consumer sentiment. But, you know, I, I think there's part, part and parcel on some of those things you just said, Lance, that there are some people who are saying, hey, let's get out. Now, yeah. historically, those some of these guys are pretty good barometers as far as like, okay, maybe that bottom <laughs> is actually here, and now it's a good time to buy. Right. And then, but, but again, you know, as I was saying, is you know, the risk here is that we haven't had to deal with inflation at 40-year highs. Correct. Right. And, you know, the, I think, you know, the big, you know, kind of the big, Catalyst, I guess, is is you know what would cause this market to turn around, and I and and you know that's basically the Fed not necessarily pivoting back to QE, but just saying, hey, we've hiked rates enough, and if they hike rates seventy five basis points this week, which is what's expected, um, and then maybe they hike again in September, and then say I'm done. For now, you know, let's let's just even even wait and, wait see. And see approach, yeah. right? Yeah. If, if they say, "Hey, let's let's wait and see," I think that that's going to be a huge. You know, the markets are going to quickly factor in. Okay, the Fed's done hiking rates, which means you know what does that mean, right? If the Fed's done hiking rates, what's the next cycle, right? Cutting rates, right, and and going back to QE, so that could really elicit a pretty huge kind of risk on rally, which ironically would negate the need for the Fed to cut rates. Right. So, you know, the, the, the market kind of screws itself on a couple of different fronts here. But, you know, you'd have this I think you'd have a fairly big risk on rally, you know, into 2023 if the Fed does indeed stop hiking rates. Yeah. But where does where does the economy shift and the economy get back on track? I mean, it's been so overly stimulated for the last yeah. so many years. Where does it organically where do we see that growth come from? I don't know. And, and, that, it's, a, and it's, a, it's a great question because, you know, in the last two years, as a to your point, right, we had all this growth that came from, you know, the stimulus that's not coming back. Um, you know, we don't see any real push right now by yeah. the administration. I mean, the, the administration's too tied up in trying to, you know, codify, you know, abortion rights and same sex marriage rights and, you know, kind of, you know, fight the Supreme Court, there's no real focus on, you know, fixing the economy or, 
you know, fixing the budget or anything kind of important, right? So, the, so my point is, is there's no push in Congress right now to do any more spending. You know, Build Back Better's dead, right? Mm-hmm. And there's no talk. Again, they're they're too focused on trying to vilify the Supreme Court rather than, you know, fix the economy. So there's no push for Build Back Better. There's no push for more checks to households. And without there really being a, a pretty significant disaster in the economy, there's not going to be a demand from voters for that type of action, right? So if the market takes off on a risk-on rally because the Fed is expected to stop hiking rates, that removes all that, that need, right? Because, you know, Nancy Pelosi's NVIDIA trade for $8 million will be working great, so there'll be no, no push for you know, sending checks to household and bailing people out of mortgages. It's kind of interesting. It's almost like a child where they think if you, you close, they close their eyes, you can't see me. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the same exact thing. Oh, hey, nothing to see here. Don't worry about it. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to do anything to, to help alleviate some of these issues. Now, granted, we know what a lot of it is what caused some of these issues as well. But I think, you know, what about the you know, what's going on in the European Union with, you know, Russia's kind of in control when it comes to energy policy. Yeah. We're going to OPEC asking them to continue or increase production. We've decreased it here. We're making it harder and harder. Where does that end? Well, no, the, that's no. got to be baked in too to all these prices. Yeah, well, some of it, yeah, and but you know, some of the the unintended consequences haven't. And, th- and this is what I'm saying. This is why it's such a challenging environment because there are there are things here that you know we could make a very good argument that our indicators are entirely wrong. And they might be, right? There's nothing that says that just because indicators are oversold, they just can't stay that way. This never happened before, but doesn't mean that this time might not be different. Be right back after the break. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. Inflation touches every aspect of your life. No one can avoid it because we're living in an inflation nation. RIA Advisors has a nine-step inflation battle plan, and we're sharing it with you in a special summer lunch and learn, Thursday, August 4th at noon. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. There's no magic elixir against inflation. Our nine-step plan can help you blunt inflation's effects. Register today at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to the Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. Any questions and comments, of course, uh, Penny Ratliff, as always. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. If you have questions, comments, send them. Uh, Danny and I answer them all the time. So if you have a question about anything, always happy to answer them for you. Just hit the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on the Ask a Question link right there, and uh, let us know what you, what's on your mind. Um, so it's interesting this morning, a uh, headline out. Kathy Wood is, of course, uh, the famous ARC fund investors closing down one of her first ETFs. And, and what's interesting is, is that, you know, this is the first ETF in her career that she's ever had to shut down and it probably won't be the last at some point. Now, you know, ETFs only work as long as money is flowing into them. And 
obviously, if you know, there, if, if nobody wants to buy a particular ETF, there's no reason to keep it open, keep paying the expenses. And so she's shutting down her transparency ETF. Um, with it launched at the end of last year and owns things like Spotify and Teladoc. And I find it interesting because she has the same holdings in every fund, right? If you look, if you look at the ARC fund, what's in it? Teladoc, Spotify. <laughs> You know, so you just kind of go, you know, through different funds and they have a lot of the same holdings. And that's not surprising, right? I mean, because you're always chasing performance. So you just, you know, you launch a fund and call it some some name and you stick a bunch of the same holdings. Kind of like this whole ESG thing. And I just wrote an article yesterday on our website talking about the latest, you know, ESG problem. And, you know, the problem with this ESG rating system is that you know, there's no real basis for it. And you kind of have to scratch your head when S&P kicks Tesla out of the ESG rating. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it just doesn't really quite make sense. You know, Tesla is the, the EV car maker and, you know, supposed to be the leading cutting edge on green technology, but it gets kicked out of the ESG uh, universe. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But you know, that's kind of where we are, right, with a lot of this. And, and, and again, as we start talking about these things, what becomes important is performance and at the end of the day, it's all about performance. And, and again, you know, oil prices and oil stocks have been doing great this year. And not surprisingly, people are taking money out of clean energy to put it where? Into dirty energy. Surprise. And it's something we talked about in when all this nonsense started back in 2019, 2020 about ESG. We said, this is great. It's fine and dandy. We saw this back in the 90s with SIN stocks. And as soon as performance changes and it always does right money moves from one area of the market to another then people are going to chase that because at the end of the day people want to make money in the markets that you know investing for your virtues one thing but if your virtue is not making you any money you're going to switch and put your money somewhere else right it's just it's just the way it works yeah well and it's interesting right now you, you look at what president biden's actually doing he's got the labor department going after and saying hey in 401ks you know there's a there's certain rules they yeah. have to do to make sure that you know, everyone's acting as a fiduciary. Well, now they're saying they need to weigh factors such as climate change, board composition, workforce practices, all these things that are ESG, mm -hmm. a tilt towards it. Right. And so while, you know, it's not in vogue, and we can just go back and look at many of these quotes that, you know, Al Gore has. I mean, that that really makes you want to go out there and buy it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, all these other guys. And essentially, you're, you're going to be required or... or money managers will be required to state why they would purchase one of these funds and way more favorably towards that ESG tilt, which, which is kind is, of Which is going to be interesting because one of the, so what you're talking about in terms of these guidelines is called ERISA guidelines. And Correct. these ERISA guidelines are established to protect investors. And one of those, you know, kind of those guidelines in, in a couple of areas require that 401k plans put funds that are the lowest cost you know, cost is one of the key factors of the ERISA guidelines that you've got to look at when establishing your 401k plan. You've got to have the lowest cost funds in there. And what's interesting is, is all these ESG funds charge about four times as much and you get exactly the same performance as the S&P 500. We've done the analysis we showed you here and talked about it here on the show and showed you articles and charts about this stuff. But, you know, the performance is exactly the same. In fact, the article that I wrote yesterday, I had a chart in that showing the, the performance of two big ESG funds versus the S&P. They underperform and they charge three times as much. So, you know, it kind of the whole movement violates the whole ERISA guidelines to start with, which is providing lowest cost funds with with tenured track records of managers and funds. And so this whole tilt 
is actually robbing investors in 401k plans of their money by having them pay more in expense ratios to be in these funds. Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No. But again, this is just, you know, and again, what what's going to happen uh, at the end of the day is that people are going to come back to and they'll say, great, there's this ESG fund that charges me four times as much. And I can just buy the S&P index. The S&P index fund will always be in your 401k plan, right? That's not going to change. So people will just invest in the S&P index fund. And then these ESG funds, and, you know, as we've talked about, what's interesting about these ESG funds is that a lot of these funds were underperforming funds to start with, and they were losing money flows. And so what the managers did was, and, and, the, fund, and the fund companies did, was they changed the name from the Putnam Growth Fund to the Putnam ESG Fund, and all of a sudden, they started getting money flows, but the performance still sucks because it's exactly the same holdings and the same managers. You didn't fix or change anything. You just changed the name. And, you know, look, I can drive a Volkswagen and, and you know, stick a Ferrari emblem on it. Doesn't mean it's a Ferrari, right? So <laughs> just because I changed the name doesn't fix the problem that it's a four-cylinder. So you know, that's, that's, just the, that's just the issue. And, and so ultimately, at the end of the day here, you know, this is, you know, investors will figure this out, right? And these funds are going to go away and, and they'll die their own death because of lack of performance. And this, again, same thing we saw back in the 19, late 1990s, early 2000 with the SIN stocks. You know, don't invest in SIN stocks. Those became the best performing stocks and the whole virtue signaling of investing into SIN stocks went away. So we'll see how that works out. So I've pretty much monopolized most of your time this morning, Danny. What, what did you have to talk no, about no, today? No, it's all good. You know, one of the things that I, I keep hearing questions on is what's going on with China and, you know, the mortgage crisis there. Is there a contagion factor that something larger no. could happen? No? Not, not Our mortgages are run here by our banks, yep. right, and by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and Ginnie Mae. So, you know, what's happening in China isn't going to happen here um, unless, unless people here start going figuring out that they actually control the banks mm -hmm. and, and there's an old story about you know if you borrow a hundred thousand dollars from the bank it's your problem but if you borrow a million dollars from the bank it's their problem so the one thing that they figured out in china was is that all the the mortgage holders revolted they said hey pff, you know we're not paying the mortgage yeah right all of a sudden it's no longer an individual problem you know it's, if, if just danny shows up and says i'm not paying my mortgage well they just go kick him out of his house if you have 5 million people show up all at once or 10 million people or 100 million people show up all at once and go, I'm not paying my mortgage. Now it's the bank's problem because they can't go kick all these people out of the house because now they don't have, they have too much inventory they can't liquidate. It's a bank problem. And that's what happened in China. So if there's a lesson to be learned here, you know, or, or, the, or I shouldn't say if the lesson to be learned, I should say the risk here is that all these millennials that went out and bought homes you know, post the, uh, you know, pandemic shutdown, all of a sudden all stand up at once and learn their lesson, you know, from take the lesson from China and they all band together on social media and say, just don't pay your mortgage. Now you'll have a, a bank problem. And that will be, that will be akin to what happened with the subprime crisis, which was essentially the same thing. People just couldn't pay their mortgage all at once. So that's going to be, you know, I don't know, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but that's, that's the only contagion effect you're going to have. Well, now that you put it out there, Lance. I know. I know there's, I know there's millions of millennials that listen to this show. <laughs> right. Well, but, but think about it. I mean, it has been the trend with investing and other, other things have been on, you know, everybody looking at Reddit boards, you know, trying to band together to push change. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's not out of the question. 
No, no, not at all. But uh, but again, you know, these are, you know, the, the issues. And again, you know, we haven't, and I would say that that risk would be higher if we'd saw, if we'd seen them do it with student loan debt. Yeah. You know, if they could have all banded together and not paid their student loans. Well, they still don't have to make payments until September. Well, right? that's, that's been a moratorium. I know. Well, that's, that was, I was just about to say that is, you know, the government inflict, inflicted this moratorium, so they haven't had to make payments. But they could have affected change a long time ago on student loan debt had they all banded together. And, you know, and, but the problem in the U.S. is always trying to get, you know, we, we listen to the media, right? And we see these groups of people that are protesting. We think that that's the majority of the country. That's a very, very small percentage of the overall country. Yeah, right. everybody's are, not so far right or far, far left. left. Right. Yeah. And so the, the problem is trying to motivate 500 million people or 100 million people or whatever the number is, right, that you need to affect the change. I mean, it's probably not, even, you know, it's, it's probably 10 million. If you could probably get 10 million student loan borrowers to, all together to, to revolt, that'd probably be enough to do it. But trying to organize that many people is hard because that's not the way the majority of people think, right? These, these little small pockets are out there that you hear a lot of talk about, and the government has, has, is yielding to these very small pockets of, of demands, um, but that's not the vast majority of borrowers. Yeah, right now, a lot of student loan borrowers aren't paying their I'm not going to pay my student loan debt if I don't have to. When the moratorium goes off, then a lot of people will pay their debt because they're, they're just that way, right? Most people are going to pay their debts, and so, you know, they'll go through. Now, there's going to be a few people that don't, but that's, you know, their issue. Yeah, but it's not only people not wanting to pay it or just because there's a moratorium, but it's also, hey, they're still talking about potentially you know, giving some type of reprieve or forgiveness. If that's the case, I'm not paying either. Right. Yeah, no, as long as you keep doing stuff like that, there's no reason to pay. Yeah, you'll see a lot of minimum payments. The problem is that the problem will continue to get worse and worse yeah. as people rack up other debt. Exactly. All right, we'll come back. Wrap up the show with Danny Ratliff. Don't go away. daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Inflation touches every aspect of your life. No one can avoid it because we're living in an inflation nation. RIA Advisors has a nine-step inflation battle plan, and we're sharing it with you in a special summer lunch and learn, Thursday, August 4th at noon. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. There's no magic elixir against inflation. Our nine-step plan can help you blunt inflation's effects. Register today at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment show and welcome back of course it is my favorite day of the year it's national hot dog day yeah what's your favorite hot dog plain with mustard 
I'm not. I'm not fancy. Throw a little relish on it if you want to get fancy. Right. right. No Chicago dog or. Well, I mean, you can do that, but I mean, yeah. you, don't, you don't just you don't have to you don't have to do a whole lot with a hot dog. But I figured you were you know, a chili but, and cheese But you can't guy. boil a hot dog, right? You no. Got, you got to cook the hot dog on the grill. Yeah, I agree. You know, I mean, you can, I mean, boiled hot dogs are okay, right? I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna kick them out of bed, but <laughs> you know, grill. You hot eat hot dog. dogs in bed? Well, <laughs> where do you eat hot dogs? <laughs> Not in bed. <laughs> oh, man. But, yeah, I mean, you know, anyway, you don't have to do a whole lot. That's right. It's the perfect meal. It, 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 not really good for you, but. No. <laughs> so hot dog, they, I did just see a study that said that uh, beer is good for you in this heat. Mm-hmm. So hot dog, beer. beer. Mm-hmm. Um, why know, is beer good for you in the heat? I, I didn't see why. It just said. Because it's cold. So it's water, but but it's dehydrating. So you wouldn't think that that would be that's right ideal. Yeah. I guess maybe if you have one, two, twelve. <laughs> it's like you ever seen those memes? Like the, the, I, the I wife think, asks I the think, husband, think, "How many beers do you have?" Two. Yeah. <laughs> Every time. Every time. Two. Yeah, I think I think a lot of these things are put out by the manufacturers. Like beer's good for you in the heat. Provided yeah. to you by Coors. <laughs> yeah. Look who <laughs> look in the fine print at the very bottom. Exactly. Who sponsored that ad? <laughs> Anheuser-Busch conducted a study of beer good for you in hot weather. <laughs> Surprise. Oh, <laughs> anyway, um, RMDs. Uh, this is one of the things that, you know, is one of the challenges that occur, you know, in a down year. We've talked about this before. You know, one of the, the issues in down markets is when markets are down, if you're also taking out your, you know, if you're living on your money, right, taking withdrawals. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of exacerbates the decline in your portfolio, right? Because if you're, let's say you're taking out your 4% standard withdrawal rate out of your portfolio and the market's down 10, market goes down 10, then you take out four, you know, you're down 14% versus 10%. So it definitely has an impact on your portfolio. And then ultimately you have less capital to work with to recover. But in some cases, you don't have the choices of not to make those distributions, right? RMDs is one of those issues. That's your required minimum distribution. Once you turn 70 and a half, you have to take your distribution. 72 now. I'm oh, sorry, 72. Apologies if I have to change that. Um, but yeah, and, and now you have to make these distributions coming out of your IRA so the government can get their taxes. You know, but this is one of those, you know, challenges that, you know, Danny and Richard work well with, with our clients on managing those withdrawal rates and down markets and just something you've got to be aware of that you know that that risk is there yeah and i think well the the bigger thing that most people think is that okay this is going to uh, cause me to to basically drain my retirement accounts and guess what ideally that's what the government wants they want you to spend your last dollar with one foot in the grave right essentially but that's my plan well that's a many's plan right but the issue is is that it becomes harder and harder to overcome these distribution rates and so one of the things that we advocate for which you hear us talk about regularly is Roth conversions, taking distributions from retirement accounts earlier than those required minimum distribution ages, especially in light of being in a much lower tax code than what we're likely going to be in the future. We continue to hear, you know, rumblings about, you know, increasing taxes. It's not just going to be on the wealthy. It's going to be on everybody. So I think we need to be mindful and start preparing now versus waiting. And, you know, the problem is just just like, you know, we almost got a tax bill done last year. All of a sudden, mainstream media is all over. Do a Roth. Do a Roth conversion. Mm-hmm. Well, you should have been doing it well before them actually about to pass something. Right. And so the idea here is keeping more money in your pocket. But 
The other caveat is I think that many people assume, so your first year's distribution is 3.7%. Every year thereafter, that actually goes up. They're going to require you to take a little bit more each and every year. So what they do is just a required minimum distribution. Once you reach 72, they're going to look back and say, what was your 1231? So December 31st balance on your retirement account. And then they're going to give you their divisor. And that's basically going to be what your age is. And there's going to be a divisor attached to that, that you're going to divide that account balance by. And that's going to give you what your required minimum distribution is. At age 72, it's 3.7%. At age 80, it's 5.5%. At 90, it's like, it's almost 9%. It's 8.8, 8.7. Uh, so these are things that, you know, over time, and obviously depending on where markets are, it could be difficult to beat. So yes, you would ideally be draining mm-hmm. or, or moving your account balance down over time. Now, a lot of people think that just because you have to take this distribution, you have to spend it. Right. Well, that's not always the case. Right. So we could turn around and we could put these into taxable accounts. Um, you can move these funds if you were still working, depending on what type of account you had and you were still required to take an RMD, you could potentially put into a Roth. Um, it, you cannot do a conversion with these funds. Right. You can also utilize this for charitable contributions. So up to $100,000, you could actually go strict, straight to a charity and you're going to be able to to eliminate those tax the tax burden on that. So you want to be a little bit more mindful as far as what we're doing. But I think one of the bigger things, Lance, is that many people just they take it out and assume you have to spend it, and don't realize, hey, right. let's just put these funds back to work. Exactly, and and that's why I'm I'm personally going to help people with their RMD situation. So I'm setting up a personal charity that you can all donate your RMDs to. I like so it. It's, it's called the Human Fund. The Human um, Fund. <laughs> Genius. If you have to be a Seinfeld fan, you'll catch the reference. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, so, you know, this is, you know, part of also, this is something that we talk about a lot with people because when we see individuals come in, a lot of times they have all their money, like all their money's in their 401k plan. They have mm-hmm. no other savings. Everything's in their 401k plan, you know, and this presents a challenge down the road because of RMDs. And, you know, this is why we try to encourage people, you know, when you're looking at your financial situation, you know, ideally, you should have about 50% of your money in stuff that you've already paid tax on, 50% of your money kind of in your, you know, your pre-tax, tax-deferred accounts. And the reason for that is, is that in retirement, when you have to start taking these, you know, your distributions to live on, right, uh, 3.7% may not be enough coming out of your 401k plan to live on, but, you know, you can take the rest of your money out of your taxable account so you can ha- kind of manage your tax situation in retirement as well. So you don't automatically kick yourself up into a higher tax bracket because you're having to take all your money out of your 401k plan to live on every year. Well, I think that's the kicker, Lance, is that we want to make sure that, you know, even if you did a 50-50 split, I'd prefer to even have less in those those pre-tax funds, just because we don't know what Uncle Sam's going to do. And the way I always explain this is picture your IRA as a business and you have a partner and that partner's Uncle Sam. And you know, the unique situation is they can change their ownership at any given time and you have no control over it. So your $100,000 or $1 million or whatever it may be, all of a sudden that it goes from you actually having 80000 by the time you pay taxes on it to maybe you having seventy, which could be a pretty substantial difference over time. And so especially as those numbers increase. So that's why we advocate, hey, let's look at other strategies, taking distributions earlier, um, looking at these conversions, looking at other ways to mitigate those additional back pocket taxes, which you know, I think it catches so many people by surprise because nobody ever talks about it. Nobody talks about if you pull too much money out of your IRA, your 401k, 
that it could potentially impact you for Medicare premiums. I mean, we're talking about going up from 170 bucks to potentially over $500, depending mm-hmm. on how much you take. That's that's pretty. That's that's not inconsequential when you do it for you, your spouse. Uh, you're you're going to pay that for the next two years. So the other part of this is that understanding all of the different things and moving parts that are associated with this and trying to get around that. Now, sometimes you just can't. But like you said, I see a lot of guys that everything's in, inside the 401k. There's hardly anything after tax. They say, hey, we're checking off these bucket list items. We're buying that beach house. We're buying the the car, the boat, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, you know, they get this Medicare shock. Or they say, wait, Social Security is taxable at what amount? Yeah. And, and all these things add up. And so the idea is to start giving yourself that flexibility well before you get to this point. And, you know, I, I visited with a business owner yesterday and we talked about just this in their 40s, you know, mid 40s. Hey, doing very, very well, wants to put funds aside, but everything they have is going to those pre-tax accounts. Where can we start being more thoughtful as far as where these contributions go? But, you know, the other question, Lance, is, and this is more of a market type of question, I guess, is that somebody who has not taken their RMDS of yet this year, where do you go? Account balances are down quite a bit from from where they were on 1231. I mean, we're sitting at market highs, basically, and and now we're 20% down in, in general, right, the indexes. Yeah, and so and that's and that's you know the the sad part again. They look at that twelve thirty one balance when we were at all time market highs. And now you're down twenty percent. Now you've got to take your withdrawal out based on that twelve thirty one mark. Correct. Right. So so it hurts even more. Yeah, and, and so now that that withdrawal is even bigger. And you're like, this doesn't really seem fair, but that's just the way it works. But again, when you take the RMD out, you don't have to spend it. It also doesn't mean you have to immediately reinvest it either. Just put it in your money market account and figure out kind of what the next steps are. Well, that could be a real benefit to somebody that, hey, if you've already maybe taken some profits, you've moved some things to cash already, mm-hmm. this gives you a great opportunity to go ahead and move it out, but then be prepared to put those funds back to work. You know, when the opportunity arises, and maybe it is right now, maybe it's a, it's stepping into the markets. I know a lot of places are just going to say, hey, throw it all in, don't worry. Um, you know, I don't think that we can be. No, but I think there's some, I think there's some opportunities to start nibbling on some stuff. I mean, there's a lot of stocks that are down 60, 70, 80%, and they're not going away. Um, as, as companies now, yep. you may be early, but this is where you know you buy half a percent, or say say you want to own a four percent position in some stock, right? Whatever, three percent, pick your number, buy half a percent, and then if it goes down some more, great, buy some more, and then as it keeps going down, just kind of dollar cost average into it. And you know, again, a lot of these stocks are down so much, there's not a lot of downside left. You know, so you can start kind of nibbling on a position, and then as it starts to recover, then continue building that position yeah. on its way out. Again, you know, trying to time the exact bottom of anything is a fool's errand. So, you know, use opportunity when it comes along. Hey, opportunity. I'm buying air conditioning stock. <laughs> no doubt. And beer, apparently. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> all right, wraps up the show for the day. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, Michael Leibowitz's new article is out on the website now, of course. Uh, ask questions, whatever we can do to help you out. If you need to have a meeting with Danny, he's always happy to sit down with you, talk about your financial situation with you as well. Just simply go by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on the Ask a Question button. You can schedule an appointment, do whatever you need. We're always happy here to help. Uh, also, check out our digital advisor platform at simplevisor.com, where you can track our portfolios as well as have them managed for you automatically. That's all at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, simplevisor.com. All right, have a great day. See you back here tomorrow. It's a rich man's world.